0: Thank you very much. The clearest view of the Emperor of Japan is from the upper stories of one of the many high rise office buildings that line the avenues of Tokyo's government and business districts, overlooking the moats of the Imperial Palace. From there, even more starkly than on a map, the strangeness of the city structure becomes clear. Compared to a Versailles or a Buckingham Palace or even the older royal residences in Kyoto, there is nothing palatial about the imperial home. It is a park, a shaggy forest of ponds and mixed trees with a handful of modestly elegant modern buildings, an administrative block and a few roads faintly visible in between. There used to be a nine-hole golf course there built in the 1920s by the then crown prince Hirohito, who took to the sport during a visit to Britain. But years later, so the story goes, the biologist emperor spotted a rare flower growing there and decreed that the lynx should be allowed to return to their natural state. The palace grounds occupy the core of the largest city in history, Even after three decades of stagnation, this is among the most valuable land in the world. At Japan's economic peak during the 1980s, it was said that the 280 acres were worth as much as the entire state of California. The comparison is meaningless, of course, for this land can never be sold, developed, or by most people even walked upon It's tempting to see in this priceless nothingness an image of its inhabitant. The imperial palace is a space rather than a place, just as Japan's emperor is, in constitutional terms, the symbol of the state, gelded of pre-war divinity and power. But like him, the palace grounds wield an influence far beyond their functional insignificance. Like a magnet, they transmit a field of force that ripples invisibly through the city around them. From the imperial centre, a whirl of moats and canals, partially filled in but still obvious on the map, spiral outwards to connect to the Sumida River. At a further remove is the circling Yamanote railway line. Aircraft flight paths, subway lines, and expressways are all carefully routed to avoid encroaching above, below, or upon the palace grounds. The city I am talking about, Tokyo, offers this precious paradox, the French semiotician Roland Barthes observed 50 years ago. It does possess a centre, But this centre is empty. The entire city turns around a site both forbidden and indifferent. One of the two most powerful cities of modernity is thereby built around an opaque ring of walls, streams, roofs and trees, whose own centre is no more than an evaporated notion, subsisting here not in order to irradiate power, but to give the entire movement the support of its central emptiness. Ten months ago, for the first time in 30 years, the principal denizen of the emptiness changed. The last time this had happened was in 1989, following the death of Hirohito, whose status as wartime emperor made him the object of resentment overseas and muted unease at home. Japanese radicals had marked the succession by firing homemade rockets into the palace grounds where they landed harmlessly among the squirrels and crows. Last year's enthronement ceremonies for the new emperor Naruhito took place, by contrast, quite without incident. Polls showed that the imperial family was more popular than at any time since the Second World War. Credit for this belongs to the man who came in between, Japan's 125th emperor, Akihito, who abdicated last April after 30 years on the throne. During the post-war half of the Showa era, as Hirohito's reign is known within Japan, the emperor was a politically divisive figure, reviled by the left and literally worshipped by some on the far right. By the end of his reign, the period known as Heisei, Akihito had brought about a political and institutional transformation, rich in irony and paradox, and unprecedented in the history of modern royalty. Out of an ancient aristocratic history, he recreated his family as emblems of middle-class decency. He kept at bay conservative ultra-nationalists who would hijack the emperor as the vehicle of a right-wing revival. He faced head-on the question of Japan's historical relationship with its East Asian neighbors and its responsibility in their wartime sufferings. Despite his status as a constitutional monarch, explicitly barred from politics, Akihito established himself as representative Of one of the dominant streams of political sentiment in post war Japan, although one that by the 21st century was becoming marginalized. An earnest, anxious, center left pacifism, grounded in a passionate and defensive attachment to democracy and the ideals of the 1947 peace constitution. It would be wildly misleading to describe him as a radical or a socialist. But during a period of crisis and decline for Japan's left, the most prominent, consistent, determined, and effective figurehead for progressive politics was the heir to a hereditary monarchy, the son of the man in whose name Japan's imperial wars were fought. The country's communists, socialists, and the fragmentary and ineffective jumble of parties that presently constitute the opposition. None have been more effective than Emperor, now Emperor Emeritus Akihito, in asserting the rights of the disadvantaged or emphasizing the grim lessons of Japan's mid 20th century wars and the fragility of the era of peace, democracy. And prosperity that followed. Most remarkably of all, he articulated all this indirectly. The post war constitution, created by the victorious American occupation, defines him, defines the emperor as the symbol of the state and of the unity of the people. He shall perform only such acts in matters of state as are provided for in this constitution. And he shall not have powers related to government. In practice, this amounts to a constraint on political utterance far stricter than that imposed on other constitutional monarchies, such as Britain's. And Akihito faithfully avoided straying across this line. Instead, he communicated by a kind of code in the form of seemingly bland statements and innocent observations which nonetheless vibrated with implication and significance. Like many monarchs, Akihito and his empress Michiko became identifiable over the years by a personal style as practised and familiar in its own way as the British royal family's handbags, corgis and stiff G&Ts. There were his double-breasted suits, and her old fashioned hats, there was their public demeanor, one of intense solicitousness and earnest courtesy and Then there were his enthusiasms, his love of tennis, of the cello, and above all his scientific researches in the taxonomy of a small, unglamorous fish called the gobi Akihito 's esoteric expertise is genuine. He has done painstaking work in distinguishing different Gobi species by minute comparison of their shoulder blades. It's an appealing, almost pythonesque image, the dotty Boffin emperor ensconced in his palace, happily picking through fish bones. And yet few modern monarchs have been more burdened by care, both about the present and future of the imperial institution and about generational conflict mental illness and personal unhappiness within his immediate family much of it suffered by its women the theme that has run through Akihito's life is war the horrors it inflicts and the duty to prevent its recurrence he was born in 1933 the year Japan withdrew from the League of Nations following its invasion of Manchuria and he spent the Second World War as a privileged evacuee. He returned to a defeated city burned flat by incendiary bombing. On his 15th birthday in 1948, the wartime prime minister Hideki Tojo and six other convicted war criminals were hanged by an American executioner at Sugamo Prison. He was the first emperor to receive a conventional education at Gakshuen, Japan's grandest school. Among his English tutors was Elizabeth Vining, an American Quaker who bestowed on him the classroom nickname Jimmy. There's Jimmy and and Mrs. Vining. His interests in those days were almost entirely confined to fish, she wrote later, and I felt they needed broadening. (laughs) The influence of this American pacifist on the young prince was resentfully regarded by right-wing intellectuals. One of them would later complain that Jimmy Akihito had contracted a spiritual and intellectual fungus from his tutor. His father, Hirohito, was never an active war commander or strategist. But modern scholarship makes it clear that far from opposing the Pacific War, he only ever opposed losing it. From the day of Japan's surrender, however, there had been a feverish effort not only to exculpate Hirohito for responsibility in the war, but to depict him as a pacifist who, by his surrender, personally saved his unhappy people from annihilation. Having emerged from the war, unhanged and undeposed, Hirohito spent the rest of his reign publicly playing the role of a constitutional monarch, while routinely sticking in his awe behind the scenes to question the appointment of ministers or encourage measures against communists. From early on, however, his son not only met the technical requirements of the post-war settlement, but helped to define and embody it. The decisive moment was his marriage in 1959 to Michiko Shoda, the beautiful Catholic-educated daughter of a flower magnate. Although technically a commoner, Michiko was a child of wealth and privilege, but the couple quickly created themselves as emblems of cheerful middle-class consumerism. The lovely crown princess was photographed in her pinny, standing in the kitchen among her appliances and beside her husband holding hands as they danced on ice or playing with their young children on the beach. Akihito's covert engagement with politics has attracted more attention, but this was arguably the greater achievement, to fashion a hereditary monarchy completely purged of grandeur and auteur. The pre-war emperors were magically remote personalities, figuratively above the clouds. When Hirohito gave his famous Surrender broadcast on the 15th of August 1945, many Japanese huddled round their radios had only a broad sense of what he was saying because his stylized delivery and imperial diction laden with poeticisms was so far from standard speech. The personal manner of Akihito's family is difficult to describe because they are a long way from being easy, affable, or conventionally charming. My own encounters with them have been limited to the press conferences that they routinely give for their birthdays and before making overseas trips. At one of these, I stood in a line with my fellow correspondents to be greeted by the then Crown Prince Naruhito and Crown Princess Masako. Various impressions registered from the fleeting handshake. The noticeable difference in their height. She's a few inches taller than he, a fact disguised in public. The fact that all of us inexplicably felt the need to whisper. And the strange atmosphere which members of the imperial family seem to carry around with them. A gentle and well-meaning strain. Like Akihito and Michiko, Naruhito and Masako give the impression of being Terribly nice people, desperately, almost neurotically concerned that you're not having a sufficiently nice time. They are awkward and distant, but for the opposite reason to that of the British royalty, not entitlement and superiority, but rather an anxious humility. This is one of the things that makes the Japanese monarch unique. Has there ever before, in any country or at any time, been an emperor who was not posh. Anxiety was the defining emotion in Akihito's palace. Whatever the personal impulses behind his remaking of the imperial personality, it was not pursued for its own sake, but as a matter of survival and with a keen sense of vulnerability. Prince Philip once said of the British royal family that we are fighting an election every day of the week. Akihito's electioneering was many times more energetic and consistent, even though Japan has no organized republican movement and alternatives to the monarchy are almost never debated in the mass media. Quote, Ten percent of people support the imperial system regardless of what they do because of blood and succession, I was told by someone who worked inside the palace 70 or 80% are more or less comfortable as long as they're performing their role diligently, devotedly, dedicatedly. Unless the overwhelming majority feel more or less comfortable, this system could be in trouble. They, Akito's family, have to prove that the existence of the monarchy means something. It's a conscious agenda for them. For that purpose, their solution is to work hard. Reporting on the imperial family is a struggle for Japanese as well as foreign journalists. With the single exception of an audience given by Hirohito to an American reporter in 1975, its members have never given interviews. At their press conferences, questions have to be submitted in advance. The answers are read from a prepared script. Relations with the media, as with all other aspects of their lives... Are regulated by the Imperial Household Agency, a conservative organisation staffed by bureaucrats of mediocre ability and well developed arrogance. But senior positions in the IHA are filled from other government departments, including the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And among these appointees are shrewd, broad minded, and courteous men. They're inevitably men eager to talk about their work and the monarch whom they serve. In 2007, I spent a few weeks talking at length to several of them, with whom I've kept up intermittent contact over the years. They were far from being detached and objective observers, but they conveyed vividly the strangeness of the life lived by the emperor and empress, different in almost all ways from foreign royalty. Let's go back to that. Slide. It's a bit more interesting to look at. A day in the life of Akito and Michika began at 6.30 when they rose and watched the morning television news and trudged around one of the gardens in the Imperial Palace. The old palace buildings had been destroyed by American incendiary bombs, so the current buildings are of late 1960s construction. Smart and dignified, like their occupants, but far from the opulence of a European state palace. Akihito would go between them, on foot, or in case of rain, in his car, a grey 1991 Honda Integra, which he drove himself. Rather touchingly, he insisted on keeping the speed limit, wearing his seatbelt, and renewing his driving licence, despite the fact that these private roads are almost traffic-free, and exempt, in any case, from the laws of the highway. He received visitors, government ministers, foreign leaders and royalty, newly arrived ambassadors and the recipients of imperial awards in an official palace. Thirty-two times a year, dressed in the garb of a Shinto priest, he paid his respects at a shrine to his legendary ancestor, the sun goddess Amaterasu Omikami. In the evenings were official receptions and banquets, then the job of finalising plans for the following day. Last thing at night, the emperor and empress might watch a nature programme or a video. Thirteen years ago, at least, when the information was shared with me, they did this on a VHS player. There was no DVD in the palace and no internet. The senior courtiers to whom I was speaking did not have work email accounts or even computers on their desks. My communications with Makoto Watanabe, then the Grand Chamberlain to the emperor, were by telephone through his secretary. One of his colleagues, a slightly younger man, had a personal email account, which he could access once he got home. But the imperial couple were avid consumers of print, both Japanese newspaper newspapers and magazines, and, I was told, my own newspaper, The Times, which arrived at the palace by airmail several days late. Despite bearing the burdens of royalty, Japan's imperial family enjoys almost none of its perks. This is the greatest contrast with the British royal family, the monarchy to which it is most often compared. Elizabeth II and her descendants have their official duties, which they discharge with varying degrees of conscientiousness. But independently of these, they're exceptionally wealthy individuals, as well as being both members and leaders of an extended community of aristocrats, plutocrats and sycophants. When work, if that is the right word for it, is done, they're free to pass their leisure time in the company of other rich upper class people indulging in the pleasures of shooting, skiing, yachting, sunbathing and nightclubbing. None of these diversions are accessible to members of Japan's imperial family. Apart from a modest seaside villa and a house in the mountains, they have no grand retreats. In the absence of a domestic aristocracy, they have few playmates at all and little time off from official duties. A budget of 324 million yen, which is 2.3 million pounds a year, is allocated to the emperor's private household, a little bit less than the cost of renovations to Frogmore Cottage. But all of it must be accounted for. The emperor has no property or money of his own. Even the weekend villas are owned by the state. Once, I was told, Akihito was being briefed by the governor of the Bank of Japan on the state of the consumer economy. At one point, he interrupted with a puzzled question what is a cash point machine? From what I was able to gather, Akihito and Michiko did very little private socialising of a conventional kind and rarely accepted hospitality outside the palace. It's very difficult because of security, Mr Watanabe, the grand chamberlain, told me, and also because of the question of fairness. Why go to that person's house and not to another's? Somehow it's not done. On Saturday mornings... Akihito would play tennis with his courtiers. On Sundays, in his latter years, he relaxed by pursuing a new line of scientific research into the tanuki, or raccoon dogs, which inhabited the palace grounds. The publication of his findings was recorded by the Kyodo news agency. The emperor collected their droppings every Sunday afternoon between January 2009. In December 2013, it reported and examined plant seeds contained in them through a microscope. So now we know why he's so happy and also what he's looking at under a microscope. Tanuki droppings. If they can take one whole day off a week, they're very lucky, Watanabe told me. They belong to this very frugal, serious, workaholic generation, which almost views leisure or a wealthy lifestyle as immoral. They don't complain about it and they don't show it in public, but I'm sure it affects them physically and psychologically. Akihito himself touched on the cost of emperorship in his birthday address in 2013. Having already lived 80 years, I'm somewhat perplexed by the question about my life in the coming years, he said. But I would say that while accepting the limits arising from age, I hope to continue to fulfil my role as best I can. Being an emperor can be a lonely state. Akihito's reformation of the imperial institution with stealthy covert are never announced or articulated in formal terms, But to anyone who'd lived through the pre-war period, it was obvious and startling. None were more disconcerted than the group who regarded themselves as the emperor's greatest loyalists and admirers, the nationalist far right. The fungus of progressive constitutionalism, egalitarianism, and personal compassion proliferated through his years as crown prince and blossomed following his succession in 1989. Kenneth Ruoff, the preeminent scholar in English of the contemporary imperial house, has identified the distinctive strands of Akihitoism. Among them are his, quote, efforts to compress the margins of Japanese society by engaging in person with the disabled, disadvantaged, and victims of natural disaster. Akihito and Michiko visited leprosy sanatoriums and homes for the elderly and disabled, and became patrons of the Paralympics in its earliest days. They knelt beside the displaced victims of volcano, earthquake and tsunami. In a post-Diana era, displays of royal empathy have become a benign cliché, but it's difficult to exaggerate the contrast with the style of the remote Hirohito, or the extent to which these good works got up the noses of people on the far right. Ruoff quotes the reaction of one commentator, Jun Eto, to the hugs and handshakes that the Emperor and Empress exchanged with survivors of the 1995 Kobe earthquake, which is that picture. It is not necessary for them to kneel down, he wrote. It's not necessary to be at the same line of sight as the victims. If one views it from the perspective of the emperor having a special position according to the constitution, then it would make no difference if they stood. It would be fine if they were on top of a horse or in a car. There's no necessity whatsoever for the imperial couple to try to be loved by the people. To people like Mr. Eto, the emperor was comprising imperial dignity simply by being nice. And from their point of view, it would get much worse than this. It's in his relationship to the constitution that the ironies surrounding Akihito become richest and most complicated. During the early decades after the war, right-wing intellectuals and organisations such as the Association of Shinto Shrines had campaigned unsuccessfully for the constitution to be revised or even scrapped and for the restoration of the predecessor Meiji constitution of the 19th century, which had positioned the emperor at the heart of political life. But this predictable polarisation was thrown into confusion by the coming of Akito. The signs were there, even when he was crown prince, always couched indirectly, but in terms that were palpably unfavourable to the nationalist right. Terms such as peace country and culture country that were widely used immediately after the war make people of my generation nostalgic, he said in 1974. I would like to give those concepts another try. His enthronement ceremony in 1990 was, on the face of it, a triumph of regressive conservatism, conducted according to the invented pseudo-medieval traditions of 19th century Shinto. But the new emperor spoiled it all with his oath of office, which he devised himself, in which he swore that, with all of you, implying the people at large, he would protect the constitution. Early on in his reign, he addressed the question of Japanese responsibility in the brutal conquest and colonisation of the territories of East Asia. Legal responsibility and matters of reparations had been settled in the formal treaties painstakingly negotiated in three decades after the war. By the time of Akihito's succession, Japan had become the second richest country in the world, the richest in Asia, and a bountiful provider of development aid to the peoples whom it had formerly tyrannised. Japanese consumer products, especially automobiles and electronics, as well as industrial technology and management techniques were already a central part of people's lives all over the world. During the course of the Heisei period, Japanese cultural products, including food, whiskey, fashion, architecture, film, television drama, fiction, comics, computer games, pop music, art and photography, became adored all over the world. The notion of Japanese as a cruel race... The unquestioned assumption of many people of my grandfather's generation all but evaporated in the West to be replaced by new and overwhelmingly positive associations of stylishness, sophistication, creativity, and cool. But in East Asia, these ideas continued to exist side by side. There are many Chinese and South Koreans who love ramen, manga, uniqlo, and Haruki Murakami, who hop over to Tokyo or Fukuoka whenever they can to shop and eat, but who see no reason to regard the Japanese of today as fundamentally different from those who murdered, raped, and enslaved their forebears during the 1930s and 1940s. Japanese have failed in the task so successfully accomplished by Germans of persuading their former enemies they're sorry. Much of this has to do with the survival of the imperial house. Japan changed in fundamental and irreversible ways during the US occupation from 1945 to 1952, but there were powerful continuities. The intensifying Cold War and the outbreak of hot war in Korea in 1950 led the Americans to unpurge middle-ranking conservative politicians and bureaucrats whose status as anti-communist reactionaries had suddenly become a positive asset. The occupiers actively endorsed the ludicrous portrayal of Hirohito as a helpless hostage of evil militarists over whom he finally and heroically prevailed. If the emperor, the man in whose name the war had been fought, was the blameless victim of a small clique of manipulators, then it was natural for many of his people to regard themselves in the same way. The war's final act, the unprecedented horror of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, enhanced this sense of victimhood. It made it easy for individual Japanese to avoid reflection on small ways in which almost all of them had colluded, actively as well as passively, in the wartime regime. Why didn't the Japanese people try to pursue the emperor's war responsibility, asked the film critic Tadao Sato, as quoted by Ruoff. For the vast majority of the people, the easiest way to exonerate themselves of war responsibility was to exonerate the emperor. Akihito never contradicted the established view, of the official view of his father, In his one public utterance on the matter, he went some way towards endorsing it, opining that it is my perception that the events that led to war must have been contrary to what he would have wished. But throughout his reign, he gave the impression of doing all that he could to unsettle complacent and forgetful attitudes towards the war and to discomfort those on the right who regarded it as a just an even heroic undertaking. He accomplished this partly by the simple device of turning up at the sites of some of the war's foulest battles. In 1995, he visited Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the 50th anniversary year of their destruction, as his father had done in the early post-war years. But he also went to places where Hirohito would never have dreamed of showing his face. He returned repeatedly to Okinawa, the site of the war's deadliest battle, and the only place in the home islands where large numbers of civilians faced and died during enemy invasion. In 1990 floor, he flew to Iwo Jima, the tiny volcanic island where only 200 of the 21,000-strong Japanese garrison had survived. In 2004, he went to Saipan, where Japanese civilians were herded off cliffs by their own soldiers to fall to their deaths rather than surrender. In 2015, he went to Palau, site of another grotesquely hopeless last stand. Officially, his purpose was one to which the most rabid militarist could not have objected, to offer prayers of consolation to the dead of all sides. In practice, though, the effect of such visits and the media coverage that they attracted was to remind Japanese in detail about the senseless butchery and waste that characterised the last year of the conflict. With each passing year, we will have more and more Japanese who have never experienced war, he said in 2015. But I believe that having thorough knowledge about the last war and deepening our thoughts about the war is most important for the future of Japan. The political intent embedded in these pilgrimages became most explicit in his engagements with foreign leaders. In 1990, he told the visiting South Korean president, No tae I think of the sufferings your people underwent during this unfortunate period, which was brought about by my country, and cannot help but feel the deepest regret... Two years later on a visit to China he said in the long history of the relationship between our two countries there was an unfortunate period in which my country inflicted great sufferings on the people of China. I deeply deplore this. These statements short of direct apology but approaching it were not the work of the emperor alone or even his close courtiers. They reflected the relatively centrist an internationalist tenor of the liberal Democratic Party governments of the time, a stark contrast with the conservative nationalism of the party led by the current Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. On the 50th anniversary of Japan's surrender in 1995, a socialist Prime Minister, Tomichi Murayama, made an explicit expression of apology for the war in a statement that was repeated in its essentials and endorsed by successive cabinets for the next 20 years. He spoke of Japan's mistaken national policy and of colonial rule and aggression which caused tremendous damage and suffering to the people of many countries, particularly to those of Asian nations. Quote, In the hope that no such mistake be made in the future, Murayama concluded, I regard in a spirit of humility these irrefutable facts of history, and express here once again my feelings of deep remorse and state my heartfelt apology. On the eve of the 70th anniversary in 2015, Abe made it clear that such statements were a thing of the past. Quote, We have engraved in our hearts the histories of suffering of the people in Asia as our neighbours, he said. We must not let our children, grandchildren and even further generations to come who have nothing to do with that war be destined to carry the burden of apology. The crucial phrase in the Moriyama statement, deep remorse, would not be uttered by the Prime Minister again. But the following day, in Abe's presence, Japan's hereditary emperor took up the baton that its elected leader had dropped. In his own annual statement on the war's end, Akihito used the central phrase for the first time. Reflecting on our past and bearing in mind the feelings of deep remorse over the last war, he said, I earnestly hope that the ravages of war will never be repeated. Akihito's politics glimmered forth at other times, and not only on formal occasions... At a garden party, he expressed his disagreement with a measure by the Tokyo city government, making it compulsory for schools to raise the flag and sing the national anthem, a hymn to the emperor. His most memorable wind-up of the far right came at his birthday press conference in 2001, the year before Japan's co-hosting of the Football World Cup with South Korea. One of the questions obediently pre-submitted by the Japanese press, asked in vague terms about any interests or thoughts you have concerning the Republic of Korea. The answer, at first glance, appeared pedantic and uninteresting, a rambling disquisition about the introduction into Japan of Korean music and technology in the 8th century. So droning was the preamble that it was easy to miss the significance of what came next, I, on my part, feel a certain kinship with Korea, the emperor said, given the fact that it is recorded in the Shokunihongi that the mother of Emperor Kamu was of the line of King Muryong of the kingdom of Pakchi. King Songmyong, son of King Muryong, is recognized as the one who introduced Buddhism to Japan. That's Emperor Kamu. The Shoku Nihongi are ancient imperial chronicles. Kamu and Muriyong were ancient monarchs of Japan and Korea. Veiled in the historical verbiage was a factual observation that was also a rebuke to all those espousing myths of Japanese racial uniqueness and purity. Not only had Japan borrowed richly from its neighbor, but 75 generations back, Akihito's direct forebear was a korean so camu's mum was a korean it is regrettable however that japan's exchanges with korea have not all been of this kind akihito concluded this is something that we should never forget the statement made front page news in seoul but was all but ignored by japanese journalists who seemed to struggle to know what to make of it but to the people to whom it was directed but the people to whom it was directed They knew. The dismay of the far right expressed itself in ironic ways. Having campaigned for years for a restoration of the emperor's authority, organisations such as the the Association of Shinto Shrines suddenly became indignant that he was being used for political ends and demanded that he adhere to his constitutional role as a strictly symbolic figure. Their horror at the realisation that the emperor was not an imperialist can only be imagined. It was not manifested directly, of course. Emperor worshippers, by definition, cannot criticise the object of their devotion. Their target instead was the next thing to him, his wife, Michiko. There's no gauge for measuring the unhappiness of families, but Hirohito's descendants have had their share of troubles and of tragedy. In 2007, Akihito's first cousin gave a speech which memorably began with the words I'm Prince Tomohito, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> as long as I can remember, the prince told an interviewer, the imperial family has been like one big ball of stress. The elder of Tomohito's brothers, Prince Katsura, suffered a stroke at the age of 22 that left him paralyzed and confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. The younger, Prince Takamado, died of a heart attack at the age of 47. All three sons predeceased their parents. The whispering campaign against Michiko began in the early days of her marriage. She got on badly with her mother-in-law, Empress Nagako. That's Empress Nagako, bottom right. A formidable figure of the old aristocracy who looked down upon the businessman's daughter. The Shinto establishment focused its resentment on her education at Sacred Heart, a famous and expensive Catholic school in Tokyo. Although she was never baptized, there was speculation that she, and even the Quaker-educated Jimmy Akihito, harbored crypto-Christian sympathies. Michiko seems to have suffered a breakdown as early as 1963, She was described as suffering great mental strain. Her second pregnancy was aborted after three months because of abnormalities in the fetus. There was a second breakdown in 1993 when she stopped speaking for seven months. She had recurrent bouts of shingles, apparently exacerbated by stress. The poised and comely young bride was transformed within a few years to a thin, strained-looking woman. I never expressed it in terms of the word pressure, she once said at a press conference. I just felt sad and sorry for not living up to people's expectations and demands. I feel the same way even now. It's been a great challenge to get through each and every day with my sorrow and anxiety. When I'm sad and concerned about things, I don't know how to cope, so sometimes I pray or whisper a childish, magical charm. She was 72. With grim inevitability, the cycle of unhappiness repeated itself in the next generation. At 32, the age when Japanese mothers start to fret about unmarried sons, Akihito's heir, Crown Prince Naruhito, became engaged to Masako Owada, an internationally educated diplomat On the career fast track in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. She had repeatedly declined his proposals, but eventually yielded to the argument that she could do more valuable work on behalf of her country as princess and empress than as a mere bureaucrat. From the point of view of the palace, however, Masako's intelligence and education were secondary to her principal function to give birth to a future emperor. This massacre failed to do. Under the imperial household law, only a male heir can succeed to the Chrysanthemum throne. For generations, the imperial family has displayed a statistically bizarre tendency to give birth to daughters or to have sons who perish in childhood. By the end of the 20th century, the last boy to have been born into the family was Akihito's younger son, Akishino, in 1965. After him, succession would fall to a line of increasingly elderly uncles and cousins. Following the crown prince's marriage to Masako, six years passed with no sign of a baby. In 1999, she miscarried. Two years later, after fertility treatment, she became pregnant and gave birth to the couple's first and only child, Princess Aiko. The family drama that lay behind these events burst into the open in 2004. At the end of the previous year, Masako had abruptly dropped from public view. The Imperial Household Agency reported that she was experiencing stress and exhaustion. In fact, she'd suffered a breakdown and was being treated with antidepressants. In a drastically unscripted press conference, Crown Prince Narahito talked directly and with unmistakable anger about her unhappiness and frustration. Having failed to produce an heir, the life of freedom and foreign travel that had been the condition of their engagement had been blocked to her. Narahito spoke of quote, moves that nullified her career and nullified her character, based on that career. At the time, it seemed that the source of his frustration was the agency and its courtiers. In fact, as became clear in my own conversations on the subject, the target of his anger was his father. The son and daughter-in-law wanted what they believed they'd been promised, the opportunity of a royal career rather than just a succession of duties. Akihito identified an immensely more important priority – the continuation of the line. After Aiko's birth, the succession crisis could no longer be ignored. The momentum was building towards a change in the law that would have allowed her and future imperial daughters to succeed as a reigning empress. This was passionately opposed by the traditionalists. One imagines intense conversations and lobbying behind the scenes. And then, in 2006, the wife of the younger prince, Akishino, who had given the impression of being quite content with her daughters of 14 and 11, conveniently gave birth to a son, Prince Hisahito. So that's the family tree now. Um, There he is, bottom right, little Hisahito. The crisis has been deferred for a generation although it will almost certainly recur in the future. The future survival of the world's oldest royal family now depends entirely on one 13-year-old boy. Let's hope that young Hisahito turns out to like girls when he grows up. <laughs> the justifications invoked by opponents of female succession to do with the survival of the male X chromosome originally imparted by the first mythical emperor, are absurd. It's tempting, therefore, to write off the imperial institution itself as an absurdity, but it is more important and more sinister than that. Britain's royal family is deplorable principally because of the way that it institutionalises the corrosive divisions of social class. Japan's imperial house does damage of a different kind Akihito succeeded in creating what looks in some ways like an ideal monarchy, modest, unsnobbish, inexpensive, highly educated, and shorn of links to the armed forces. But the virtues that he represented of pacifism, liberalism, democracy, and respect for science do not need a hereditary institution to support them. They flourish or founder elsewhere, in Parliament, the media, academia, and civil society. Japan's imperial system, which is not to say it's individual members, serves as the culture for a virus that has struggled to survive elsewhere, a cult of superstition, racism, and authoritarianism that remains flickeringly alive even now, three-quarters of a century after its military defeat. Akihito contained the infection during his reign, but for all his scientific expertise, he was not able to devise the vaccine for it. His determination to remain within constitutional limits made it impossible for him to achieve what might have been his historical destiny, to bring about enduring reconciliation with the victims of Japanese wartime brutality. Words were proffered, but words were not enough. The dissent of a minority of right-wing nationalists—and they are a minority—was enough to neutralise mere utterance. What was needed was a physical gesture, a recordable, replayable, visual emblem of atonement, comparable to Willy Brandt's kniefall, his famous genuflection of the monument to the Warsaw Ghetto. Akihito. Could have devised such a tableau. He came close on those Pacific battlefields. But by the 21st century, such a gesture was no longer required by people in the West. To carry any of the necessary meaning, it would have had to be made in Asia, it would have had to be made in China. No post war government had the conviction or courage to make real such a moment. An self-defined role as protector of the Constitution made it impossible by definition to step outside its strictures unaccompanied. It's one of Japan's greatest failures in 75 years of post-war success that it remains unreconciled with the countries in the world with which it has the closest physical, linguistic and cultural proximities. The tragedy is that it is now too late, simply because everyone who carried individual responsibility for the war is dead, or soon will be. The ripest opportunity was lost in the earliest years after the war, when the American occupiers rejected all arguments for abolishing the imperial house, or even for having Hirohito step down in favour of his son. It's tempting to see Akihito's abdication last year as a covert message of reproach directed at his own dead father. Yet even he could not allow himself to permit the imperial family to do what its own patterns of birth have been trying to achieve for for generations, a peaceful, natural extinction, smothered sublimely in a surplus of women. If you ask me what the imperial family is all about, and I think and think and think about it, the very final conclusion is that our meaning lies in our simply existing. The alcoholic prince, Tomohito said. The imperial family, he concluded, could discharge its duty simply by, quote, waking up in the morning, eating breakfast, eating lunch, eating dinner, then going to sleep, repeating that 365 days a year. Akihito when he was still crown prince, considered another possibility, only to dismiss it. Constitutionally, in a sense, it would be best for the imperial family members to be robots, he said. But I don't think it would be best for us to be robots. That is the difficult part. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. That was um, absolutely fascinating. Um, I've got two questions, but I'll try and be very quick. Uh, the first is, why have we so- heard so little about them? Although I maybe only speak for myself there. Uh, the second question is, could you say a little bit more about how they fended off, or how he fended off the the enemies he must inevitably have created through his um, seemingly excellent behaviour? Yeah, what, why you hear so little about them? I mean, it, yeah. Um, even in Japan you you don't hear that much about them Um, and the reasons are I think that um, you know at, at its core the existence of the imperial family is no one says this but it is in some ways an embarrassment because of Hirohito's status as wartime emperor, and because that was never faced or dealt with or treated or reconciled. Um, so there isn't, even in the Japanese media, there isn't that much about them. It's quite nice. Um, and the result of that is that people, the general public, are able to be... Um, indifferent in a way, but uninformed about them. Um, So things like, for example, the the, the press conference he gave where he said my great-great-great-great-great-granny was a Korean was almost unreported. Many Japanese people, I'd say most, have no idea that that was said or that that is, is the case. So it's sort of been... by unspoken consensus... They've been kind of buried in a way. And th- there's a feeling the people I spoke to, these, these rather smart, uh, you know, able diplomats who, who were working there, were divided because in, in one way they, they wished that, um, that the work the emperor did was better known. But at the same time, there's a kind of caution about raising your head too high above the parapet, um, so I think that's the answer. And as for your second question, how did he fend off his enemies? Well, I mean, no one could ever say they were his enemy. Um, so they didn't take shots at him directly. They, they took their shots, as I said, at his wife, at, at Michiko. And um, there's no... I mean, um, even the Japanese Communist Party, which is surprisingly successful even now, I mean, they have you know, a dozen or more MPs. Um, at various times, they've had more than that, um, is not, I think, Republican in its, its position. I think they're quite, they're quite happy with emperor. Um, so, you know, Japan is a, is a kind of benign and forgiving place uh, in, in that way. Um, even if people really disliked you, they're, they're still quite nice. <laughs> there are some more questions. Um. I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about Naruhito. Uh, I was in Japan last year around the time when the, um, uh, he was going to be crowned, and there was a lot of anxiety about what sort of an emperor he would be because he's considered fairly different from his father, especially his testy relationship with him. Yeah, um, I didn't talk about him at all. Um, I think the answer is that we don't really know what kind of an emperor he's going to be, because he has only been in the job less than a year. Um, it took Akihito a few years to kind of establish his style. Um, and the honest answer is I don't know, and it's very difficult to find out, um, because the people who do know him well um, you know, are extremely discreet, and you have to drink lots of cups of tea and get all sorts of introductions before you. Really get to people who know what they're talking about. The the people I did get to know who were Akiito, his father's people, um, and and Japanese journalists who, you know, who, who cover the, the palace. Um, some of them were a bit sniffy about him. Actually, they. Um, I mean, there was this conflict between father and son, so you have to be a bit careful uh, that you're not, you know, being being sold the partisan line. Um, but one point of view that was to me was that the son's a bit of a lightweight um, he's not as earnest and kind of committed as his father he doesn't read all the history I don't know if that's true or not but that's what people like that said um, and there was a concern that he would be more uh, susceptible to the, um, the, the right wing nationalists who are, uh, who are running the government at the moment Um, but we don't really know. I mean, the the, the test was when he was uh, enthroned the day after his father's abdication, there's a ceremony, I showed the the picture of it, where he dresses up in the Shinto gear and climbs into a, a kind of 7th century sort of box. And there he reads out a brief declaration, which... Uh, Akihito devised himself, and I think Naruhito did the same. And Naruhito's words were very similar to his father's. Um, his father said that he wanted to protect the constitution. I think Naruhito used a slightly less assertive word than protect. I can't remember what it was now. Um, you know, in, in judging these things, you're—it's um, like kind of criminology in the in the old days. You're, you know, you're making very fine judgments about words that are sometimes ambiguous. Uh, so the answer is I don't know and it's, I think, too difficult to judge. He'll be under more pressure from the government. I mean, um, this is a you know, very conservative government and they are the government. Um, I, don't, I think they'd be too clever to try and you know, use him in obvious ways, but the influence is there anyway. Um, it, I was wondering about the Kuneito, about the Imperial Household Agency. There's this stereotype, as far as I can tell, that, that they control everything. Um, that whatever the, whatever the emperor does, it's actually, apart from these, you know, vague wordings that, like, uh, um, it's, it's not the emperor's decision, it's actually the imperial household agency's decision, and they hold ultimate power over the emperor, what he can and what he can't do. To what extent is that true? To what extent does the household agency actually control what goes on and what can and can't be done by the emperor, and to what extent is that actually the emperor and the imperial family themselves, and to what extent is that the government and etc. 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 Yeah, good balance of power. Yeah, um, we'll a, do you want to take another? Take another one. Yeah. Oh, uh, there's one there, just behind you. If you pass the mic back. Yes, um, I was wondering: is abdication? Um, an unusual occurrence has it ever happened before in the imperial family? Okay. Um, well, to answer the first question, yeah, it's, um, it's difficult to know. Um, I mean, there is, there is the law uh, and the constitution which says the emperor can't be involved in government. There, there are the laws about, uh, you know, how which govern succession, budgets, things like that. Everything else is is up for negotiation, and you know it's negotiated between the the individuals um, who are in theory uh, you know objects of, of respect and a certain authority, and, and then a bureaucracy. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that it, it's a um, it's an unspoken day to day negotiation, um, and I think the. And it's probably a negotiation between the, the sort of annoying paper pushers, who I was talking about, and the the more interesting, um, uh, talented people who are in the in the senior positions. Um, I, I mean, Akihito clearly was was able, in in some ways, to express his his view of, of history and, and, and politics to some extent, um, and, and Narahito as well, the the, the son. Um, at that moment I described, um, visibly expressed his anger and went drastically off script. So it doesn't happen very often, but it it can happen. Um, I mean, being... um, It's true to some extent in all societies, but being, being Japanese and certainly working within Japanese institutions, there are these sort of pressures working on you all the time and the degree to which individuals can stand out is, is limited sometimes. Um, so, sorry, that's not a very clear answer. The honest answer is I don't know. It's difficult to say. Um, the, the second question about abdication. Um, yeah, it, it is unusual. I mean, there have been... I'm trying to remember now. I think there have been maybe six, eight abdications before in 126 generations. Um, the last one was in the 18th century... So for this one, they had to pass a special law to allow the emperor to abdicate. Uh, I mean, that is an example to go back to your question of, uh, of the emperor asserting himself. He was worn out. He was exhausted. Um, he wanted to retire. There was no way for him to do that. So he gave a, um, a, t- a televised message one day, which he'd almost never done before, where he essentially said he wanted to do this. And then the politicians, you know, the government had to to bring it about. But what they were worried was that if they changed the imperial household law permanently to allow emperors to abdicate when they were worn out, that that would open the floodgates and then people would want to be changing other aspects of the imperial household law, including female succession. So they passed a law that said, essentially said, This guy, Akihito, can abdicate, that's it, and then it's it's over. Hi. Um, I'm wondering uh, if you could speak about the relationship between um, Akihito and uh, the left, because you touched on left um, political opposition maybe being a bit divided, and I was wondering whether um, Akihito and his um, behaviour with... um, meeting more of the common people whether that occupied a space that um maybe would have been filled by a leftist leader which perhaps could have united the opposition so i'm interested in the relationship between that and the political left and the other one back here um, I understand that decisions made about education of future emperors are very considered and very loaded, and you've touched on that slightly in your talk today. I wonder if you could comment about educational decisions made about Narahito's education and who made them. About the education of, of the emperors. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, the question about the left. Um, the left in Japan is just a disaster. This, Hopeless. Um, I mean, there's a lot of um, uh, people often ask the question, well, why why has Japanese politics turned turned to the right? You have this uh, this Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who's who's a conservative nationalist and um, uh, and keeps being re-elected and dominates politics, despite being really quite mediocre um, in terms of his intellectual... Capacities and and also his kind of political skills, and the answer is um, not that he's particularly good, but that the left are so hopeless. Um, It's a you know complicated question, perhaps for another lecture as to why that is. Um, But there is there certainly is a space, um, and I wouldn't say that Akihito filled it. He didn't, wasn't allowed to do that. He didn't try to do that. but as I try to say, you know, in, in rather a bizarre and paradoxical way, um, you know, it it, it would be an exaggeration. I kind of want to say, but I can't because it's not true that um, Emperor Akihito is the kind of leader of the left in Japan, <laughs> um, and he's not that. But he has, as I said, been the most kind of consistent, um, prominent figure. Um, in, in a, a, a political field where, you know, the left has sort of collapsed on itself. Um, and that's the question about education. Um, yeah, um, well, uh, Hirohito was, was sort of taught by tutors in the palace. Uh, you know, distinguished professors of Tokyo University would come and tutor him one-on-one on, you know, history and things. Um, uh, Akihito went to this posh school, now, uh, Narahito, I think, went to the same school, I think. Um, and then he went to the university of that school. And then he went to Oxford and did a, I think an M. I don't think it was a PhD, in um, medieval canals. <laughs> he's, he's very interested in, um, in water. Um, water is his big thing. Um, the thing is, you know, when, because of the constitution, um, I, I mean, he couldn't have gone and studied political science because then he'd have had to express an opinion on it, which he's not allowed to do. So, um, you know, Gobies was, was safe, um, because they don't have politics as far as we know. Um, and, and, medieval waterways, uh, that was what, um, Naruhito did and, and he's made that his thing. So he, um... You know, he occasionally sort of flies to UN conferences on um, water management, um, which, I mean, we laugh. But it's very important, you know, um, and, and says, you know, worthy and reasonably well-informed things that aren't particularly memorable. Uh, so as for the decisions, I mean... Yeah, I mean, there was no way he was going to, you know, have a, a sort of weird education. They do also... There is something called kind of... M- M- Emperor education Um, and the princesses have it as well when they marry in, where they are kind of lectured one on one about ritual and and things like that. Um, But uh, Naruhito's, you know, he's well educated in a fairly normal way. Um, Thank you all so much for your questions. Thank you, Richard, for the lecture, and we hope to see you all next year. Thanks.